Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. Unity in the body of Christ. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. <coughs> Sorry. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and from by the waves and carried about by every wind of the doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes." Rather speaking in truth, in love, we are to grown up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Good morning, everyone. So in ancient mythology, there was a, a pair of dangers in a certain part of the sea called Scylla and Charybdis. Have you guys ever heard of them? Yeah? So Scylla and Charybdis were on either side of this narrow passage through the sea. Scylla, according to mythology, was a six-headed monster who would reach down and just pick up sailors off the deck of your ship and eat them. Charybdis, on the other side, was a whirlpool. So if you tried to avoid getting your ship sucked into a whirlpool and everyone dying, you'd go too close to the other side and you'd have people just plucked off your deck and eaten. But if you go too far to the other side to avoid Scylla, you're going to get sucked down into a whirlpool and your ship is going to go under. It's not a good situation to be in. In the story of the Odyssey, Odysseus actually has to sail through this passage. And he chats with someone beforehand, and they're like, you know, it's very, very hard to sail directly through the middle. Just go a little bit more on Scylla's side, because it's better for a few of your sailors to die than for your whole ship to be destroyed. So I think that's what he does. But if you're wondering why I'm starting today's sermon talking about these ancient Greek sea monsters, it's because they actually illustrate a reality we often face in life. There are situations where if you if you go too far to one side or 
it's going to cause trouble. But if you try and avoid that by going too far to the other side, it's also going to cause trouble. And, and in today's passage that we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 4, we're looking at one of those situations where swerving too far to one side is dangerous, but swerving too far to the other side is equally dangerous. We, we need to find the proper balance so that we can live properly as a church. There's a, a picture of these sea monsters that can bring such destruction to the ships. And we're in Ephesians 4 today. Paul has spent the entire book up till this moment telling us all about the amazing things God has done for us the amazing ways that he has saved us, the, the amazing ways that he brought us back to life when we were spiritually dead, his plan for the universe that's all-encompassing to unite all things in Christ. And, and from this point on, we're at the halfway point of the book, from this point on, there's going to be a transition. His primary focus from here on out is not going to be, here's what God did to save us. Instead, it's going to be, here's what it looks like for us to live properly in response to what God has done. And so in today's passage, what he's going to tell us is that if we're going to live properly in response to what God has done, we need to find a proper balance. The church is one, so we need to be united. But this one body of the church is made up of unique individuals. So we need to not only make room for diversity, we actually need to celebrate diversity within the church. If we overemphasize the unity, it's going to crush the individuality of the people in the church, and it's going to be destructive. But if we say, oh, we need to focus on the individuality of everyone here, and we focus on our diversity at the expense of the unity, that's also going to be destructive to the church. And veering off towards either side to try and protect ourselves from the danger of the other one is going to end badly for the church. And so we, as, as people of God, need to be constantly aware, constantly paying attention to how are we doing finding the balance between these two things. And so what we're going to see in today's passage is the church is a unified but diverse body. Unified but diverse body. We have a unity in our calling diversity in our gifting, and then we'll do some bodybuilding. How does that sound? First, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for this chance to, to look at your word and hear about your calling for us as a church and, and your plan for us and who you want us to be. And I pray that you would be speaking to us today through your word, helping us to clearly understand what you call us to be and what it looks like for us to live that way so that we can be a church that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing Paul wants us to see in this passage is that the church is united. We're one. And he starts off this passage by telling us, since that's the case, because you are one, live like it. He says, live, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live the way that lines up with the reality of who you are, with all humility and gentleness. Be humble and gentle towards one another because pride and harshness destroy community and divide people. If we're one, if we're truly one, we need to live in ways that foster that unity rather than ways that divide us. Like pride, the opposite of humility. At its core, pride is competitive. C.S. Lewis, the author, he said, pride isn't content with having something for the sake of having that thing. It's only content with having more of it than someone else. So a greedy person loves money 
They want money, but they just want money because they love money. A proud person wants money, but they don't actually care about money. They still want tons of it, but not because they care about the money, but because they care about having more money than everyone else because life is a competition and I need to be ahead. Pride turns life into a competition and turns everyone around us into opponents. And when everyone around us is opponents, it's very hard to have unity because we're constantly fighting with one another, constantly struggling, trying to get ahead of one another. If we're gonna be a unified community, we need humility so that we can see each other as, as brothers and sisters rather than opponents. Paul tells us to have patience towards one another because I don't know if you, if you know this, but other people in the church can test your patience. He tells us to bear with one another in love. You know why he says that? I know a pastor should not be saying this, but it's true. The only reason Paul tells us to bear with one another in love is because sometimes other people in the church can be unbearable, right? Like, like it's true. Think about how insightful this command is. If you have been in or around churches for any length of time, you know someone, possibly many people, who have either switched churches and started gone to, going to another church or who've just left church completely because other people in the church drove them nuts and they couldn't bear it and they had to get out. And they had this idea, the church is supposed to be this, this perfect family, this perfect community, this place where everyone gets along. They saw that wasn't the case and they were done. And Paul, he's like, yeah, the church is supposed to be that way. We are supposed to be a perfect community, a perfect family, but we're not there yet. And in order to get closer to where we're supposed to be, it's gonna take some hard work. It means sticking with people when they're difficult. It means bearing with people and putting up with them even when they're unbearable. It means continuing to love them when they deserve anything but our love. That's actually the process of how we get from where we are right now one step closer to where God wants us to be. And so Paul is calling us to live in these ways that reflect our unity. And why does he call us to live this way? Because the church is one. Paul's saying, again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In our world, there's so much emphasis on the things that divide us. If you were here in Hong Kong in 2019, you remember everything, protesters or police, who do you support? You almost felt like you were going to get in trouble if you were around someone who was on the other side from you, right? It's just that emphasis on what divides us. In America, where I'm from, there's so much division around things like skin color or politics, but it can also be things just anywhere in the world, like how much money you have, how much education you have, what part of town you live in, what school you go to. All these things can divide us. And it's, it's, the problem isn't just that we're different. The problem is that we're divided by our differences. We use our differences as a criteria for judging other people and looking down on them because we think we're better than them or looking down on ourselves because we feel like we don't measure up to everyone else. We use our differences as a way of putting division between different people. And Paul is saying, no, when you become a Christian, God calls us to a new way of living. And what does he call us to? He calls us to a way of living that loves one another, that gets along with one another. He's saying the goal of us being united as a church, it's huge. 
it's so big, it's so important, it's so worth pursuing that it's actually worth it to lay down our rights for the sake of this bigger goal. That's uncomfortable. That's something we don't like to hear in our world. That's quite different than the message we get in our world. But Paul's saying this goal of unity, us not just saying in theory that we're united and, and showing up to the same event once a week, but actually having lives where we see each other as family, brothers and sisters, where we love and support one another, that is crucial. And it needs to be prioritized over so many other things that we naturally prioritize in life. And why is it such a big deal? Because Paul tells us the church is one body. All Christians are connected to one another as part of the same body. This unity and connection that Paul wants us to live out. It's actually already a reality in God's eyes. All Christians are connected to one another in God's eyes. If you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, we're connected to one another. We belong to one another. Even if we don't like one another, we're still connected to one another. We're called to live out our lives in a way that reflects that reality, that we're connected to one another. Because we share God as our father, we're family. And so Paul is calling us to live in a way that, that the things God sees as real about us, the rest of the world can see that they're real too. God's already made it a reality, but it, Paul is saying live in such a way that everyone else around you also knows it's a reality. And that's a whole different way of living than our world teaches us to live. And Paul continues, it's not only that there's one body, there's also one spirit. We've been seeing the past few weeks, the Holy Spirit empowers Christians to live the life God calls us to live. The Spirit takes God's truth and makes it real in our hearts and lives. He gives us the strength and power that we need to live the way God wants us to. And the same Spirit empowers all Christians because there's only one Spirit. So there can't be another Spirit empowering that group over there that's different than ours. No, there's only one spirit. So we're united. We're all empowered by the same spirit. There's one hope. All Christians share the same hope. What is that hope? It's what we've been talking th about through this series, that all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ. That, you know, in our world, everything tends towards death and decay and destruction and breaking down. If you just take something and, and leave it there for a while, it's going to fall apart. But if you take that pile of stuff that's fallen apart, it's not going to build itself back into something else. Things disintegrate, things fall apart. And God's plan is to reverse that. that. That one day, things, rather than tending towards death and decay and destruction, will tend towards life and, and stability and order. That's what God is doing in the world. One day the world will finally be what it's meant to be all along. And if that's our hope, then God's calling us to live in a way that aims for that to be a reality in our community and our church and our lives today. And Paul really wants us to get that. He continues, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who's over all and through all and in all. As Christians, he's saying it doesn't matter what divides us. We can have everything else separate from one another, distinct from one another, if we have our faith in common, then what unites us is bigger and stronger than what divides us. Even if we have everything else different from one another, if we share our faith in common, we have more that unites us than we have that divides us. 
And so Paul is saying, live in a way that reflects that reality. If we ignore that reality, we're missing out on being the people God calls us to be. The church is a unified body. The most important things, like like if you're a Christian right here, and you look around this room and you see everyone else in this room, we can list out dozens of things that separate us from one another, that make us distinct from one another. But Paul is saying, if we are Christians, the most important things about us are not the things that distinguish us from one another. They're the things that connect us to one another. We share the same Father, we share the same Savior, we share the same Spirit, we share the same hope. And because of that, He says, we need to live out the reality of our connection to one another. So the church is united. We are one, but that's not all we're called to be because we're also diverse. The fact that we're united doesn't mean we're supposed to be uniform. United means we're connected. Uniform or uniformity means we're the same. Unity in the church is is good. It's essential. Uniformity is not. If you pursue unity so far that you come to uniformity, you're messing with one of those sea monsters. You're in danger. And so we need to find the balance. We need to find how do we have uniformity, but also with diversity. When I was a kid, my dad introduced me to a song called I Want to Be a Clone. You've probably never heard it because it was by some Christian artist back in like the 80s, I think. But it basically made fun of churches who place such a high priority on having each person in the church be like everyone else in the church, where the goal is not to become like Jesus necessarily, but just become like the other people in the church around you. Churches who emphasize uniformity. And it, it makes fun of these churches where they ignore people's individual giftings and callings and just say, you need to be like the rest of us. There's one verse of the song. It says, so now I see the whole design My church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. And if the church only emphasizes unity and ignores diversity, that's the danger. The church just becomes an assembly line, pumping out person after person after person who all look more or less the same as one another, even if they don't look much like Jesus. But that's not what Paul is calling us to here. The goal is not that everyone in the church looks more and more like one another, The goal is that we'd all look more and more like Jesus. And so in some ways we will resemble one another more because as we all become more like Jesus, there will be things that become similar about us, but it's gonna look very different depending on the starting points we come from, right? If you're a super artistic person becoming more like Jesus, that process is gonna look quite different than a super intellectual person becoming more like Jesus. If you're an extrovert becoming more like Jesus, that process is going to look quite different than an introvert becoming more like Jesus. And if the church's goal is to have everyone in the church be an extroverted intellectual Christian, we're actually going to miss out on the beauty that God's built into the church through filling us with diverse types of people. So despite this call to unity, Paul says the church is also a diverse group. We see this in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Translation, even though we're all united, we're all one body, we don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same job. Jesus gives different gifts to each one of us that he wants us to use 
in order to bless and serve the church. My gifts are different than your gifts. That's not a problem we need to fix. That's actually a blessing we can celebrate. And in case you're like, oh, but I got lame gifts. No, we saw last week, God is rich. God is generous. God's a God of abundance. He doesn't hold out on some of us and give other ones amazing things. In his richness and abundance and generosity, he looks out at each of us. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what the church around you needs. And he gives each of us the specific gifts that we need in order to be the people he's called us to be and to be a blessing to the community around us. Which fits with this imagery Paul uses in this passage of a body. Like if every single part of my body was an eye, I could see everything and I could do nothing. If every single part of my body was hands, I could do lots of stuff, but I have no clue what I was doing. I would probably cause more trouble than good. It's only when I have eyes and hands that I'm able to see what's happening around me and do something to influence it. For a body to work properly, we need diversity that's connected to one another. And that's what the church is supposed to be, unity and diversity working together for good, to bless and build up the body. And Paul tells us what some of these gifts are that God has given to bless and build up the church. He gives us a list. The first thing on the list is apostles. Now, one thing we need to differentiate here, especially for these first two on the list, apostles and prophets, is the office of apostle and prophet versus the gift of apostle and prophet. So in the New Testament, apostle was actually like a a special label given to Jesus' original disciples after Jesus went back to heaven and a few other key leaders in the church like Paul. These people all had huge authority in the church through that office of apostle. They had all seen Jesus after his resurrection. Their writings and teachings are collected in the New Testament. They're authoritative for the church for all time. And they were foundational to the church, as we saw in Ephesians 2.20. And in that sense, in the sense of an office, the apostles were a one-time gift to the church. Once that original generation died off, there, there are no more apostles in that sense. Like no one alive today has the authority to sit down and write something and be like, this now needs to be included in the Bible. But if you think of apostleship as a gift, the gift of apostleship can still exist today. Apostle simply means one who is sent out. So things like church planting or being a missionary in a place where people have never heard of Jesus, those things can be labeled as apostolic ministries. And people doing them can have apostolic gifts. That doesn't mean they have the office of an apostle. That doesn't mean they have the authority to speak for God like the original apostles. But it does mean that God has given them these gifts to be a blessing to the church. And it's similar with the second group, with prophets. In the Bible, prophets were people who spoke for God. The office of prophet was one where you would stand up and you would be like, these are the words of God. And the things that came out of your mouth were directly from God. It was such an intense thing, such a high calling. In the Old Testament, if you said, I am a prophet, I'm speaking for God, there was a test. The test was, does everything, every single thing you say come true? And if it doesn't, you know what happens? You die. It was intense, this office of prophet. There's nothing in the New Testament that would lead us to expect that people with that type of authority of speaking for God are still at work today. 
um, where, where they're always 100% accurate speaking of, for him. I, I know of people who would call themselves modern day prophets. I don't know a single one of them who would be willing to put themselves under that test from the Old Testament. And so in that same sense, the office of prophet, like it existed in the Bible times, probably doesn't exist today. But that doesn't mean the gift of prophecy has ceased. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, it has instructions on how to practice prophecy in the church and instructions for the church to prioritize prophecy and pray for this gift. And so what does that look like? It could be things like certain people being given by God great insights into his word that they can use for teaching and instructing the congregation. It, it could be God just in the moment revealing something to you about something going on in someone's life that you're able to speak to them that there's no way you could have known that otherwise. I've had that happen to me where someone came up and they're like, I, I feel like maybe God is saying this thing. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's right, but like, I, I think this might be going on in your life. And I was like, there's no way you could have known that, but you're 100% accurate. And God used that to convict me and, and help me grow. And so it could be like that. Um, but again, the office of prophet doesn't exist. The gift does. But what that means is we need to make sure this, this book is our primary source. If someone comes up and says they're speaking for God, everything needs to be tested by what's in God's word. And and even if someone's right a lot, we still need to continue testing and making sure that what they say is true. Uh, but these two gifts, apostles and prophets, they are gifts given by God to bless the church, to help build us up, to help us help one another grow. The third group that Paul lists is evangelist. An evangelist is someone who shares with others about Jesus. On one level, all Christians are called to do this. All Christians are called to share their faith. But there are certain people who just have like a passion and a gift for it. Like I know one guy, I was at the grocery store with him one time and I was like, hey, look, there's no line in the self-checkout thing. Let's go there. And he was like, oh man, I never use the self-checkout line. I'm like what? He's like, if I go to the checkout counter with a person manning it, then I can have a conversation with them and I might have a chance to share about Jesus. Like that type of person is the type of person who, who I think it's talking about here, who has the gift of evangelism, who's constantly looking for opportunities to talk with people and share with them about Jesus. Uh, there was a lady at my old church who it just seemed like, you know, every Sunday you'd come to church and she had some new person with her that she had led to Christ that week. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> Why don't I have that type of success? I'm probably not sharing my faith as much as she is because she has this incredible gift. And so we're all called to do evangelism, but some people just have this special passion and gifting for it. And that's a gift from God to the church to help the church grow. Evangelists, they're like the midwives of the church. They, they help facilitate new birth by bringing people to Jesus. And then the, the final group that he lists is the shepherds and teachers, which looks like two groups, but grammatically it's most likely one. You notice how all of these are divided by the word the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then it's just the shepherds and teachers. And so most likely what's happening is this is one group. So a better translation might be the, the shepherds who are teachers or the teaching pastors because pastor and shepherd come from the same word. So what he's saying is if we have faithful pastors and elders, because elder equals pastor in the Bible, if we have faithful 
pastors and elders in the church who teach us God's word, that is a gift from God for building up the church. And did you notice that in this list, when he talks about the gifts that God has given the church, every single gift is actually a person? Did you notice that? Every single gift is a person. God gives the church different types of people with different gifts as a means of blessing and building the church. And, and it's not that these are the only gifts. This is a representative sampling. The church needs more than just these gifts to grow like God wants us to grow. So like in our church, we have people with incredible gifts for hospitality and prayer and serving and more. And all of these people are incredible gifts to the church. They're necessary for us to be the church that God wants us to be. And God gives each different type of person to the church to build up the church. And I think the reason Paul chose these specific ones in today's list is because they play a unique role in building up the church. We see their role in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know what that means? So there's a common idea in our world today that ministry is for professionals. People like Eric that are on staff at the church, that, you know, we get them on staff so that, so that they can do ministry. If ministry is a sports game, the professional pastors and missionaries are the ones down on the court. Maybe occasionally a lay leader from the church will lace up and jump in the game too. But the rest of us are just sort of in the stands watching ministry take place. Ministry we think of as the thing that happens on Sunday mornings or on special events. And so we all come down to the stadium on Sunday mornings so we can watch ministry happen or experience it. And when Paul says that these gifts are given, are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, he's saying, no, that's not how ministry works. If ministry is working properly, it's not that the pastors and missionaries and the pros are down on the court and everyone else is in the stands. Everyone is on the court. The whole church, including the pastor, is on the court and what happens is when we get a timeout, we take a break on the sidelines, we refresh ourselves. The pastor just also happens to be the coach who's drawing up plays to help strategize for what we're gonna do next time we go out on the court. Yeah, the pastor's in the game doing some level of ministry too, but the primary contribution of the pastor isn't that he does ministry himself, it's that he equips the rest of the church to do ministry as a team. So that means actually the, the court where ministry happens is all of life. And all of us are called to go out and be ministers in all of life. And Sunday morning, our church services is like a timeout in the game where we can come together, we can encourage one another, we can pump one another up, pat each other on the back, look at the playbook for the coming week, and then go back out and do more ministry. And we go out and we do ministry in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools. And then we come back next week for more encouragement and more looking at the playbook so that we're ready for the week after that. If I am doing my job right as a pastor, that actually doesn't look like me doing more ministry. It looks like all of you doing more ministry. Because ministry isn't just for pastors to do, it's for all Christians to do. My goal as a pastor, less than Colin's goals as elders, is to help us as a church become more mature, to get all of us in the game, to develop our skills so we can all 
build one another up so that we can learn the truth so we're not led astray by lies because we have enemies trying to destroy us and we need to know the truth. And in order for us to grow as a church in this way and to build one another up, we need unity and diversity. When you think about a basketball team, a basketball team needs tall guys because otherwise you can't get the rebounds. But tall guys typically are slow and typically don't have much agility. And so a basketball team needs those short, fast guys. Otherwise, the other team's just going to run circles around you. A basketball team needs people who can shoot the ball or else you're never going to score. But as the Brooklyn Nets have learned the past couple of years, if your whole team is guys who can score and no one plays defense, guess what? You're not going to make it very far. We need different types of people for us to be a complete team, just like in sports. We need to be distinct in terms of having different skills, different gifts, but we need to be united in the sense that we're all working together, all pursuing the same goal. And what happens when we live this way? We do bodybuilding. Paul tells us in verses 15 through 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then he skips ahead and talks about how when we do that, it makes the the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Does that seem like a strange change of topic to you? Like we're, we're all united, but we're diverse. And so tell the truth. How do we get there? How do we get from unity, diversity to, to like, don't lie to one another? What's the connection? Well, for a body to function properly, the different parts of the body need to communicate properly with one another. Did you know that it's possible to have eyes that work totally fine and still be blind? Did you know that? All it takes is damage to the optic nerve because the optic nerve is the communication channel that, that passes along the messages from the eyes to the rest of the body. And so someone with a damaged optic nerve can have eyes that physically are totally fine and still be blind. If we as a church don't communicate properly with one another, we're not going to be the body that God calls us to be. Even if each individual part is doing its job properly, if communication isn't right, we're going to be like healthy eyes with damaged optic nerves. Totally useless. And he says there are two key ingredients to truthfulness or to communication here. Truthfulness and love. Truthfulness, because if you're lying, it's harming the body, it's hurting the body, it's being counterproductive. It's working to destroy the body rather than build it up. And love, because love allows the truth to be heard. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you just get like really irritated and frustrated and you walk away from that conversation and you're like, everything they said was completely true. I just didn't like the way they said it. <laughs> it happens, right? Love is to truth what a spoonful of sugar is to medicine. You know the song, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down? A spoonful of love helps the truth go down. But it's hard. It's hard to speak the truth because at the most foundational, fundamental level, we don't believe we're united. We get dragged back into the world's way of seeing things that defines us by our differences, and we believe those differences are more fundamental than our unity. We think of me as an individual and him as an individual and her as an individual. And if we're all disconnected, then what happens to them is disconnected from what happens to me. If they're hurt, that's too bad, but it doesn't really bother me. It's better to let them suffer and go through something hard than to make me suffer. 
And if me telling the truth is going to make me suffer, if it's going to risk rejection, if it's going to risk them becoming angry with me, it's not worth it. It's only when we see our unity in Christ that we're able to speak the truth with one another in love. And on the flip side, if we ignore our diversity, it also gets in the way of us telling the truth to one another. Because when we see that we're united, believe everyone is uniform, we can justify silence and be like, why can't they talk to this person? Why do I have to be the one to do it? We're all the same. But that's not true. God has given each of us diverse gifts, diverse relationships, diverse levels of connection with one another, diverse insights into one another's lives. And he's put you in that place, allowed you to have that relationship with them, allowed you to know the things you know about them so that you can speak the truth in love to them. We need unity so that we have the courage to speak the truth, but we also need diversity so that we feel that drive and recognize that God put us uniquely in that place to be able to speak the truth to them but it's still scary, huh? And that's why Paul included a very key word for us in verse one. You ready for this word? Therefore. Because Paul, he's telling us all these things about how to live the Christian life, but he knows you and I don't have the power in ourselves to work up this way of living. And so therefore, in verse one, points us back to everything he's just said in chapters one, two, and three about what God has done to rescue us. The reality that God chose to bless us before the foundation of the world. That when we were spiritually dead, unable to help ourselves, Jesus came and made us alive. That God has already created this new humanity and that we are part of it. That God is one day gonna unite all things in Christ. The love of God and the blessing of God towards us transform our hearts and make us want to live this way in a way that no level of of mere self-will could do. If it's just up to me to speak the truth, someone might be able to guilt trip me into it every now and then. I'm not going to be doing it in love. I'm going to be doing it out of guilt. I may occasionally weaponize the truth, drop some truth bombs to get myself ahead, make other people feel off balance, but I'm never going to be using truth as a way of building the church in love. Because to truly use truth in love to build the church, it risks discomfort. It risks rejection. It kind of feels risking, like I'm risking doing something that feels like death. But when I look to the cross and I see Jesus laying down his life for me, that transforms me. Seeing him lay down his life for me frees me from needing to fight for myself because I have someone else who fights for me. When I know that God loves me because I see that proof of his love for me, it means I don't have to worry as much about what everyone else thinks of me. It it sets me free from worrying about the results because I know even if I get rejected, even if they get angry at me, in God's stories, death is never the end. It's always followed by resurrection. And so it sets us free to speak the truth in love, to build the church because we're a united but diverse community connected by the love of God for us. The whole way we're called to live as Christians is a response to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And the path of the gospel emphasizing and celebrating unity and diversity. It's the only safe path between those two sea sea monsters that want to destroy us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that unites us. And yet the fact that you want us to be unique and distinct in the ways that that you've shaped us to be. And so I pray that you would be um, working in us to build our understanding of what it means for us to be a body 
that supports and loves one another even when we're different from one another and that our differences would not be things that we see as burdens, but actually things that make us stronger. God, teach us to love one another. I pray that you would be building up your church. In Jesus' name, amen.